0: Coming
1: up on Life is a Festival.
0: I think that this coronavirus crisis is just one stage of a long initiation ordeal that will reach all the way to that level and ask us, what is a good life? It's going to give us a choice. And if we refuse the choice, because the underlying longing is still there, if we just go back to normal, if we cling to the old, that doesn't quell the longing that brings people to Burning Man, that brings people to festivals. If that longing is still there, that is an unconscious energy that will generate another crisis and another and another. And each time that we go back to normal, to cling to the old, we will pay a greater and greater price. The price is gouged out of our souls. It's gouged out of the ecosphere. It's gouged out of life. We will become less and less alive even as we continue to survive. The generosity of the universe is such that we get infinite opportunities to come alive again.
1: My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. I hope that wherever you are sheltering, you are sheltering in love. And I hope that at whatever stage in your personal initiation you happen to be, that you are at ease in this moment. By now you've probably seen, if not read, Charles Eisenstein's powerful essay, The Coronation. If you haven't read it, I'd highly recommend it. The podcast will stand alone, but trust me, it's worth reading. It starts like this. For years, normality has been stretched nearly to its breaking point, a rope pulled tighter and tighter, waiting for a nip of the black swan's beak to snap it in two. Now that the rope has snapped, do we tie its ends back together or shall we undo its dangling braids still further to see what we might weave from them? And what's beautiful about this essay and will become apparent in the interview is that Charles does not do the weaving for us. In fact, that's key to his whole position on the matter. He simply lays out the threads on the show. We talk about this incredible essay and we talk about the cultural moment where our sense of separation and our fear of death has led us to a place of constantly exerting control against an external enemy now, with COVID-19, we have an enemy that we can fight. But is that what we want? In the course of our long, meandering conversation, we discuss how we can truly be of service to those most vulnerable and whether privilege really is as privileging as it might seem for those who believe that they experience it. We talk about spiritual ego and how when spirituality is looked at as a project it invariably leads to this misunderstanding. We talk about germ theory versus terrain theory. And finally, we end with Charles speaking about how he's personally responding to this crisis and what it means for his own initiation. This pandemic is an invitation to step into true sovereignty. But Charles fears that it may just be one part of many initiatory ordeals ahead. Charles is an author, a public speaker, and an advocate of the gift economy. He has written six books, including The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, and Climate, A New Story. His article, The Coronation, is available on his website and will be linked in the show notes. It has been deeply meaningful for me to strive to produce the best content I can when there's so much noise around our current crisis, whether that is to turn isolation into a spiritual playground, to support the medical community through the voice of a festival medic, or my own philosophy of why life is still a festival, even when there are no gatherings. This episode with Charles represents a peak in my own personal thinking on this subject And the idea that much like a medicine journey, we are indeed in a global initiation. So without further ado, here is Charles Eisenstein. All right. So Charles, it's very nice to meet you. It's really a a great honor to get to have a conversation with you right after you've published this piece that was sent to me by five different people, The Coronation, which first of all, really incredible title as far as initiation and looking at how this can be an opportunity for growth and up-leveling. I really appreciated the title and I think that may have been Part of why it moved so quickly through our our mutual communities. So yeah,
0: thanks. I'm glad you appreciate the essay. It was crazy. I never didn't expect a nine thousand word essay to go viral, but these we live in uh, extraordinary times.
1: Why do you think that this particular perspective, when there's so much content around coronavirus moving around the internet, why do you think this particular perspective resonated with people so deeply?
0: Mm. I think because it gave voice to a lot <laughs> a lot of the uh, inner voices that, that people have been carrying. It's not like there aren't dissident opinions out there, counter-narratives to the official narrative. But one thing I noticed is that everybody seems so sure about their position, whether it's the CDC or David Icke or James Corbett or like anybody. Everyone's like, here's the answer, here's the answer, here's the answer. And I would find myself in the two weeks that I was doing the research for the article, whoever I would read there's part of me that wanted to totally go there because there was a relief in finally knowing what to believe. But I think that the nature of this particular kind of initiation will shake us loose from anything that we already thought that we knew, no matter what that was. And and so that's, that's the fundamental thing that I'm speaking from and into in the essay is that initiation that you mentioned, the coronation that has to go through a phase of reality falling apart and with reality falling apart, identity falling apart too, which, which brings up the questions, who am I and what is real and what's the world? You know, it, it, it brings up like the deepest questions that are never actually brought up when you think that, you know, So that's, I think that is, yeah, that's ultimately why the piece struck such a chord.
1: I love that just out the gate, we're talking about that liminal space of initiation, where time becomes different where identity becomes different the 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 goo of the caterpillar uh, becoming the butterfly that moment of everything turning upside down and i love that you've your analysis shall we say of this moment is one of not trying to pin it down not trying and you know through the essay is this idea of of control and this critique of control and i love how your essay doesn't replace one kind of control for another so Kudos to you on that, and I think we'll have a really robust conversation about these dynamics. But just before we get into it all, the audience of this podcast, Life is a Festival, are burners, festival adventurers, world travelers, medicine people, spiritual seekers. With that audience in mind, what for you would be the biggest win of our conversation today? What would you most like the people listening to experience, to understand, to walk away with after listening to us speak for 90 minutes today?
0: That's really hard to answer because I, I don't have an agenda of persuasion, really. I guess I would like people to come away with a tumult of new ideas, uh, <clears throat> new thoughts, or maybe not even new thoughts, but thoughts that ring with familiarity, even if their formulation is new. Like, like, yeah, I've been thinking that and I didn't even know I was thinking that. So it's a, uh, but, uh, but I don't think that it, I don't intend, I mean, it could happen, but I don't intend for clarity to be the result of our conversation. But yeah, there are some things that I, could guess will come out of it, but maybe I'll leave that as a surprise.
1: Mm, I appreciate that. And I I love the way the through line is already this releasing of control and allowing something to be born. And I yeah, I'm, I, I'm grateful that that's your response. I always start the podcast by asking that just so that we're kind of setting the table if there's an intention. But I like that there's a sort of amplification of what is, or maybe there's more of like a feeling response to what is that is available here. It's not as you've said, it's not about clarity or persuasion, which I really appreciate. And I think that in reading this incredible essay, it, it also didn't feel like it was about persuasion. It felt like it was about opening up the many pathways from that crossroads that we have now come to as a species. And just to bring our listeners along, I imagine most people listening to this podcast will have read the essay, Um, some of whom will be listening just because they read the essay and may not know me or this podcast or may not be involved in the Burning Man or festival communities at all. But there may be people listening who have not yet read the essay and not to say that we should do a blow by blow of, of 9,000 words in this moment, but just to kind of catch us up to speed, I'd like to talk a little bit about the essay itself and how you go from this indictment of control and this enemy without and how we experience this enemy without and try to meet it and how that brings us to a space of initiation and coordination.
0: Yeah, Let's see if I can reconstruct that arc in my mind right now. Um, Well, one one way to look at it is that one thing I see in the essay is that all of the responses that we're seeing to the COVID epidemic, whether it's the social distancing, the obsession with hygiene, the abridgment of civil liberties, the right of free assembly, the control of information, the movement of life online, like meetings and gatherings, et cetera, they become virtual gatherings, children kept indoors, not playing with other kids. All of these trends were already happening before coronavirus hit. So that means that on the one hand, we can't say, well, this is just because of coronavirus. If if it were, if these were all totally new, totally new phenomena, then we would, you know, know that they were a temporary blip, but they're not. They've been happening for decades. However, they are being made starkly visible in a way that they haven't been for a long time. They've kind of been creeping up on us. It's not like all of a sudden children stopped playing outdoors, but over 30 or 40 years in my lifetime, let's say 40 40 years, you know, since I was a kid, the change has been profound. It used to be a punishment that you had to stay indoors. You couldn't go out to play. Now there aren't any kids going out to play, even before coronavirus. All the more so now. So it's making conscious something that had been unconscious on a collective level. I mean, certainly there's people who have been pointing out this trend with alarm. But for the collective mind, this has been a largely invisible trend toward, to put it on one word, toward separation. So now the invisible is being made visible. And that is in fact a kind of an initiation. It's an emergence into a greater consciousness of that which we had been unconscious of. So that, that's one through line of the essay and therefore asking us now that it's conscious, do we want to choose a future that continues this direction? Or drawing on our newfound awareness, the newfound visibility of an invisible choice, do we maybe want to choose another direction? So it's a, it's a juncture. It's a choice point that we're, that we're facing right now. And that, that doesn't cover all the themes of the essay, but that's one of the one of the arc lines.
1: What you were just describing reminds me a little bit of the experience of meditation. When you first start meditating, you become aware that you've been captured by your thoughts. And so in the first steps of meditation, it isn't that you're beginning to find any kind of freedom from your constant thinking, but you become aware of the constant thinking. And as I was reading this essay and thinking about this current moment and thinking about the ideas of control and governance it makes me think a lot of the default mode network in an individual and the way that uh, psychedelics, uh, psychedelic ceremony releases some of the stringent control of the default mode network and allows new connections to be made in regions that don't usually form networks. And I was just thinking about it now when you were talking about how coronavirus is making us aware that these kinds of controls, this uh, obsession with safety, this fear of death that has been slowly creeping in our culture is suddenly extremely obvious. And that makes me think of meditation allowing us to wake up to the fact we've been captured by thoughts, or also a psychedelic allowing us to see the way that these thoughts have actually become oppressive to us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we could go to the psychedelic realm right now, because whether it's meditation or psychedelics or just an intense life experience, what's happening is a breakdown of identity, a breakdown of the way that we hold ourselves, understand who we are and experience ourselves. And our identity is reinforced by our external circumstances, by our relationships, by our work, by the media, just by the we're not separate individuals. You know, we are connected to everything else in the world so when there's a massive change on the outside that voids our field of this, of the reinforcements of who we have been being and it can be really disorienting there's something like that that happens with psychedelics it breaks down the holding field of our identity so this is happening now Oh yes and so I want to the other thing I want to say to bring in the the theme of death which is a really strong theme in the essay and in the coronavirus epidemic I mean we're facing death in a way that it's it's becoming visible in the public mind in a way that's that's new we've because our culture is so successful at denying it with euphemisms with distancing from corpses you know how many people actually see a corpse these days with uh, The obsession with youth, youthfulness, how to stay young, how to look young, as if death weren't going to happen, with the obsession with property and money and investments and security, as if we could triumph over death. So the particular self that defines our civilization is the separate self, the separate individual, whether it's conceived by biology as the phenotypic expression of dna or by philosophy as a cartesian mode of consciousness inside a flesh robot or by psychology or religion a soul encased in flesh it's all the same concept of self in the dominant thinking of our civilization it's a separate self in a world of other for that that self death is the worst possible catastrophe because you're gone. Like the candle flame has been snuffed out. That's not true for somebody who has been immersed in a culture that holds the self differently, that holds the self as a set of relationships, for example, that understands that inner and outer are intimately connected, that self and world contribute and create each other. Then death takes on a very different meaning and we can understand our purpose here not being just to survive as if you could survive life there's like there's a bleakness a bleakness in the separate self's conception of how to live life because what's at the end what does it all mean that fixation however on self-preservation which takes the form of safety first, which takes the form of a medical system that seeks to extend life at all costs and a value system that holds death to be the worst possible outcome, that is being brought up for examination right now. And we ask, okay, if it's gonna make me safer to never go outdoors for two weeks or never to associate with other human beings in the flesh for two weeks, do I wanna do that? or for two months, or what if it's for two years? In the news, you know, you see, oh, this could not be like the flu. It could be that you can get reinfected again and again, like the possibility that we are not seeing temporary changes. And of course, things are gonna go back toward, quote, normal. But I think we we all understand that we're in new territory. So, So the question is for ourselves, And also collectively, like, is it the most important thing to preserve life as long as possible? What sacrifices is that worth? It's the same question uh, as do I let my kid outside to roam freely? The answer to that 40, 50 years ago was yes. The answer to that today is no. If you do that, if you do the kind of things that I did as a kid, I would be taken away from my parents by CPS. Like it's just inconceivable that you would let kids go play in the quarry by themselves unsupervised, you know, or go swimming in a creek. So yeah, in in the essay I I am, I, I do give like some examples of the trend toward safety, security, preservation at the expense of other values like play like the challenging of boundaries, the exploring of your limits, growth, things like that. And this is part of festival culture. You know, no one goes to festivals because that's like the safest thing to do. In fact, you're actually stepping into the unknown, taking risks and holding that as a value.
1: I was just thinking about this wonderful idea from Burning Man, Safety Third, which is the exchange that I'm willing to give up a little bit of safety for the experience of being alive. And if everything is safe, there is no Burning Man. And you're talking about play and the expansion of boundaries and what is possible in oneself. If there's no danger to quicken the spirit, then there are no stakes. And if there are no stakes, then there's no risk and no courage. So Burning Man would be Disneyland if it wasn't possible to die there. You know, if everything was constructed so that there's a platform with a glass wall and then you, you can look at the art, but you can't participate with it. Because you can't actually make life safe. You can make it feel safe, but making it feel safe is to make it feel less alive. And so I think part of why people are so uh, rejuvenated when they first go to Burning Man or a similar event, but especially Burning Man, They feel so alive and there's so much possibility, in part because one of the possibilities is that you might die.
0: Yes. There's a big difference between holding safety first and preserving life, between that and holding life sacred. Holding life sacred doesn't mean extending it at all costs and minimizing every risk. We're seeing with coronavirus... I'm not ever sure what to call it, COVID-19, the ultimate in the safe experience, which is the experience mediated by by your computer screen or by your phone, and you're indoors, is that actually an experience, though? It's a very narrow kind of experience. There's no risk in that. So this is another example of a trend that's been around for a long time, that, that is reaching an extreme in this crisis. And it is, it reveals also, and this might be the the silver lining, it reveals our deep need and longing for real experiences. This is the same deep need and longing that you're speaking about that is met by Burning Man, where people go and they're like, Oh, what I have thought was living is a shadow just a a, a counterfeit of what living is supposed to be. I've been living in a, in a show in, in a construct in a matrix and being told that this is life. And I never knew any better because I've been so protected and so insulated from reality. The culture seeks to suppress unconsciously i don't think this is a a conscious conspiracy but it seeks to suppress anything that challenges the regime of risk minimization you know i I used the the coronation as the title to point to a specific the, the specific nature of the initiation that we're in it's an initiation into sovereignty and sovereignty means that we choose the world, rather than it being chosen for us. We choose our lives rather than somebody else telling us how to live. And I don't want to sound like a libertarian here. This is not not that I don't think that, you know, libertarianism has a, a, a thread of truth that is important, but I'm not saying, you know, screw everybody else, I'm just going to do what I want. Freedom, freedom, freedom. That is the version of freedom that occurs to the separate self. But when we understand that everything I do to the world and everything that is happening to any human being or any being on this earth is also happening to me in some way, then freedom takes on a very different connotation. And sovereignty takes on the meaning of of service, actually. The true sovereign is in service to the kingdom, not just the despot the tyrant, the overlord.
1: I think with this touching on service brings us into a space that's really important in terms of even having these conversations, which is the enormity of the world's grief. You and I, I presume that you are in a fairly comfortable shelter in place, as am I in San Francisco. We're both concerned about our parents. I read from your essay, of course, your concern about your mother. But there's something about a pandemic that class is such an important part of the experience. If you're sheltering in place in a sunlit home with a little garden and a cat, which I just adopted a cat, it's a very different experience than your small business folding, you potentially losing your home, being in project housing in a really confined space. These are extremely different experiences. And so a lot of the philosophizing about this moment can have a certain garish quality in this contrast of privilege. That doesn't mean that we should not philosophize about the incredible positive opportunities of this crossroads, but I think that it's important to carry with us the most vulnerable and keep them close to our hearts as we're having these conversations and have this orientation towards service because it isn't simply the loss of death and one's own potential mortality or even the suffering of the illness itself, but how... Injust the, the weight and burden of this global crisis is for the people who are already most vulnerable?
0: Yeah, one, one of the uh, gifts of the crisis is that it's bringing the vulnerable more into our consciousness. People are asking, well, yeah, what about the people who are losing their jobs? What about the people living in slums? What about the people living in favelas in Brazil? What about the homeless? What about the people in prisons? It's not like their lives were great before the crisis it's just that we didn't really we the privileged didn't really pay much attention to it now it's being brought to our attention and you know i'm just thinking of my uh, i don't i don't want to name him but very close relative of mine very dear person who just got he's like a uh, building custodian kind of for homes for delinquent youth or youth in the criminal justice system, you know, he just got furloughed, which is not the same as getting fired. If he got fired, he could get unemployment, but he's furloughed. So no pay. And, you know, I mean, this is a family that has like at the end of every month, $50 in their bank account. At least they have a bank account. There are millions and millions of people in the same boat from Uber drivers, to hotel maids. What are they doing? You know, and eventually it's going to reach the privileged as well the solution is not and this is this is one of the two conflicting themes that i'm seeing in the crisis so one of the themes is how am i going to make sure i'm okay this is the translation of the separate self into into the response how am i going to make make sure i'm okay i better hoard food how am i going to make sure i'm okay financially Maybe better get cash or gold or something like that. That question, how am I going to be okay when everybody else isn't, is a resistance to the initiation that is being offered here. And we're also seeing the opposite. We're seeing people, as you were saying, like, or, you know, what about the vulnerable? What about the elderly neighbors? Maybe I can go shopping for them. Like people are doing that kind of thing too. So there's a huge upwelling of solidarity along with the self-preservation. So it's those two themes are presented before us as a choice of who we want to be and what world we want to live in. And you could say that the choice was always here, but we weren't that aware of it collectively. We We felt kind of stuck in normal, trapped by our routines, trapped by our mortgages, or trapped by our jobs, or trapped by by just the institutions that define modern life. Now those institutions are kind of cracking. And so a choice that had been inaccessible, I mean, sure, some people were still making different choices, but a choice that had generally been inaccessible is now in front of our faces. And in this liminal space, the choices that we make have a magnified power. Because they set us down a new path, which will have new circumstances that confine us to that path. This is a a pregnant moment, you could say.
1: Yeah, it's extremely fertile and extremely rich. And I've noticed in my community the wonderful Mr. Rogers phrase look to the helpers, look who's helping. Mm -hmm. It does seem that so many are helping. And I didn't bring up the idea of people in the margins and their suffering to say, let's you know, let's solve the enormity of the world's grief in this particular moment, but just that when we are philosophizing about the good, there are so many people for whom the immediacy of this moment is absolutely devastating. So I just want to hold them with us as we enter into our conversation about the initiation itself.
0: Yeah. And it's also true from the perspective of interbeing, the relational self, that sooner or later, the Damage wrought on any being comes back to those who seem to be insulated from it. You know, like the most privileged nation on Earth, maybe give or take a few, would be the United States. Especially if you're in a gated community and have a buffer of investments and a portfolio and things like that. But are those actually the happiest people on Earth? Are they actually winning the most benefits? Are they actually the winners? It's Paradoxically, it is the the lens of their own value system that holds them as the winners. But if you look at levels of depression, addiction, suicide, even among the elite, and compare them with the levels among, say, you know, traditional rural or caro in Peru. You know, you go to these places and this is kind of, it's like a Burning Man experience for some. You go to these places or maybe even in, in Gabon where you've been. People say, I didn't even know what a happy person looked like until I went here. My friend who visited the Karo, children singing, holding hands, you know, like she's never seen such happy children. Another person I met who had been to Afghanistan and went to a dirt poor village, like literally dirt poor, huts with no floors, you know, no furniture, no running water, no electricity. And these were the most generous people she'd ever met. Radiating joy. So, yeah, if... It's a choice between living in this society and having money and property and, and that kind of privilege or being in this society and living in a tenement uh, and, you know, having to choose at for the, the last week of every month between feeding your kids and having the heat on. Then, yeah, it's definitely better to have privilege. But then to offer that as a roadmap for the betterment of humanity, and to say that the culmination of human progress will be that everybody lives the way that the privileged live today, that is an embodiment of the mindset of privilege that says that we're the best, we're the pinnacle, and development means to become more like us. I think that this coronavirus crisis is just one stage of a long initiation ordeal that will reach all the way to that level and ask us, what is a good life? It's going to give us a choice. And if we refuse the choice, because the underlying longing is still there, if we just go back to normal, if we cling to the old, that doesn't quell the longing that brings people to Burning Man, that brings people to festivals. If that longing is still there, that is an unconscious energy that will generate another crisis and another and another. And each time that we go back to normal, to cling to the old, we will pay a greater and greater price. The price is gouged out of our souls. It's gouged out of the ecosphere. It's gouged out of life. And we will live we will become less and less alive, even as we continue to survive. The generosity of the universe is such that we get infinite opportunities to come alive again.
1: That's so beautiful. And it makes me think of a philosophy that you've expressed on Ian McKenzie, our mutual friends podcast, The Mythic Masculine, uh, the philosophy that our closeness and harmony with nature is what brings the richness of our creativity and our aliveness. So the further away from nature we are, the less alive we are. And the closer to nature we are, the more alive we are. And and that really resonates deeply with me. And I love your expression that these series of ordeals, these global crises... Are actually invitations from the Gaia, from the broader consciousness to take us through the releasing of these outmoded ways of thinking. And that to me is very much like an experience in a deep medicine journey where. The harder you resist, the more painful it becomes until finally you're willing to purge, until finally you're willing to surrender, until finally that part of you that has made you so miserable actually just dies in that moment. And we were connected for this conversation through a few mutual friends, one of whom is Trisha Eastman, who is on this show discussing Iboga. And just before the call, I I checked in with you whether you'd be interested in, in looking at this a little bit through the lens of medicine initiation. And so to tee that up, I wanted to share also that we both have a mutual interest in male rites of passage in traditional societies. Rites of passage generally, but most especially the experience of the boy becoming a man through conquering his own ego in the liminal space of a rite of passage. This moment to me has felt very much like a rite of passage, very much like especially the experience of Iboga and my own experience initiating with the Bwiti people in Gabon where time slows and you enter a space where, for me, I was in a space before even taking the medicine that was otherworldly. It was a long process of ordeal. And so... Looking at this moment with coronavirus, it is as if the global body is experiencing this resistance that we experience when we're in our own sort of medicine ceremony where something must die in this moment. And once we give up the fight and allow that to die, we have a release that allows us to have the rebirth. And in reading the coronation, I really felt that the coronation involves that death of the child into the man or into the woman, into the king or into the queen, but that there's a death that needs to happen and that this virus is a medicine in a way moving through the global body, offering us this initiation. And perhaps, as you've said, it's one of of a series of ordeals over a long period of time. But I guess the more that we can surrender to it and allow ourselves to slough off that which no longer serves us, the more quickly we can step into our sovereignty, and our mature relation to the earth. Yeah.
0: I, I think that a rite of passage into manhood is all about fully joining the tribe as a, as a contributor, which is different from a child. A child is not expected to contribute as much as he receives going back to infancy the infant doesn't contribute very much at all it's totally dependent on the body of the mother the care of the mother the the and more generally the provision of the whole tribe to stay alive the baby cannot contribute as much as he receives and that's fine they're not supposed to but as the child grows up, this this accumulation of gifts that form even his body and his mind, eventually they reach a maturation where where it is time for the child to contribute and to join the circle of gift. And I'm not saying that children, you know, don't contribute something. I mean, they they bring us into our our love i mean to have a child is itself a kind of an initiation but but basically that moment of maturation that moment of recognition self-recognition and community recognition that you are now ready to contribute and not just to take not just to receive not just to grow not just to to focus on your own development anymore but you're ready now to join the circle of gift. That is, that is what an initiation into manhood is, in, in my understanding. So one way to look at it is that you discover your mission. But what is your mission? You know, your mission is a mission of service. If it's your authentic mission, it's a mission of service. It's not a mission of the expansion, further expansion of the separate self. That's substitute mission. That leaves the real need untouched, which is why if you make your first billion, you want your second billion and your third and your fourth billion. But no amount of billions is gonna meet the need to do meaningful work in the world. And we're seeing this even in even in the mainstream narrative, that we can no longer be guided on on what's good for me and who cares about everybody else or what's good for this nation. Like we're all connected. One nation cannot isolate itself and be okay while all the other nations are not. We're in it together and, and to expand, ultimately we're gonna expand that to include the whole biosphere where humanity, this is part of the larger initiation of which coronavirus is just one piece, the initiation into full membership of the tribe of all life on earth where we no longer think that our, our thriving can be at the expense of everything else. Our survival can be, and it has been. And we could continue down that path where nature dies more and more, and we develop one after another technological substitute for what, has, what nature has lost, even to the point of synthetic food, which we saw in the news few months ago uh george Monbiot proclaiming this as the salvation of humanity this fermentation process that you can use to make make food without soil without plants without seeds so we could go down that path but that brings us to what i was talking about before the privileged idea of what a good life is And it is a life fully mediated by screens, fully digitized, fully separate from nature in our bubbles, never going outdoors as outdoors gets more and more ugly and inhospitable. So that would be to stay in adolescence and to just get bigger and bigger and bigger. We can do that that's not the world I want to live in. I want to, to really embrace this initiation to, to let go into it. And I'm just curious. There's one thing that, that I'm just processing about the um, medicine journeys, you know, and this question of, does the medicine actually do it for you? Or is there a choice? Like, do you just let go into ego death? Is that is that done to you or is there always like a little speck of a of a choice there? And I, I'm not going to try to answer that, but it it does speak to the idea that COVID is going to save us from ourselves or that climate change is going to save us from ourselves or that financial collapse or Y2K or 2012 or whatever it is, is going to do to us what we have un, been unable to choose deliver us from choice because we're making a bad choice. So we need something from the outside to rescue us from our choice. I don't think that that's metaphysically
1: valid. For my experience with medicine work, the medicine doesn't ever do the work for you, not in the journey and certainly not afterwards. Mm -hmm. The medicine creates the stark contrast that allows the choice to be more obvious and makes resistance to the choice more and more difficult until finally you're like, ugh, let me just throw it up, let me just get it out, let me just surrender. But you have to make that choice. And you can stay, you can white knuckle it through a whole ceremony and end up on the other side being like, I am never doing that again. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to the choice in the moment, in my experience with medicine medicine has never solved anything in my life. It's simply given me a surrender to what is more true and then invited me to then do the long, hard work of integration and bringing it into my life through daily choices. So I definitely don't believe that iboga or ayahuasca does your growth for you on an individual level. And I certainly don't think that coronavirus or climate change is going to mature the human species in and of itself. But it's throttling a certain out-of-control growth and drawing these stark realities right in front of our eyes. As we were mentioning earlier about those most vulnerable, that Band-Aid over the festering wound is removed and then we go in to work with that wound. And something I wanted to say about the initiation itself is I am so deeply in love with this idea of Joseph Campbell's, the dragon that we thought to slay turns out to be ourselves, That when we go on the hero's journey, when we go into this inflection point, the, the peak of the moment where we go to slay a dragon, we actually find that we have to slay ourselves. And it resonates a lot with your essay in that we have this external enemy that is coronavirus, COVID-19, and it fits, as you've pointed out so well in your writing, it fits in this paradigm of us versus them enemy, where we can exact all of our mechanisms of control to defeat it. But actually, what I believe we will find in the liminal space of this initiation is that defeating coronavirus was never what this was about. It's actually, how do we overcome our own egoic expansion? Most exemplified in American capitalism and Donald Trump as the perfect face of it? How can we actually conquer that aspect of ourselves, allow that aspect of ourselves to die? And then we can look at this whole thing and say, oh, wow, the enemy was never coronavirus itself. In fact, coronavirus was a kind of bitter medicine moving through us to show us this deeper inconsistency in our understanding of the world that that has the externalities of depression and suicide and this complete degradation of our environment and to me part of why i love the initiation metaphor for this moment is it maps so well to this hero boy who goes into the initiation to slay a dragon and finds that it's really himself
0: yeah this was one of the themes of the essay i asked why is society on all levels, from our political institutions down to individual people, so willing to mobilize against the coronavirus, which so far has killed 50,000 people, might end up, by, by the time all is said and done, maybe half a million people, maybe even a couple million. Not, it's not nothing, but five million children every year die from malnutrition and 10 times that number are stunted or wasted from hunger. Why are we not willing to mobilize for that? Why are we not willing to mobilize um, to do something about the possibility of nuclear Armageddon or ecological collapse, which objectively is much more threatening than even if coronavirus ran, ran rampant and we did nothing. It's much more threatening. Why have we not been in a state of uproar and alarm for years about the rising level of suicide? It's almost a million people a year that are so depressed and despondent that they'll kill themselves. That's the tip of an iceberg. A million suicides a year is the tip of an iceberg of, of, of despair. Like, Why are we not in an uproar about autoimmunity, which was almost unheard of and is just making life miserable for hundreds of millions of people. And the answer to that that I propose is that with coronavirus, we have an identifiable enemy. There's something to fight, something to to kill, something to insulate ourselves from an external bad guy, which is just not the case with autoimmunity. It's not caused by a pathogen. It's not the case with suicide. It's not the case with... With obesity. It's not the case with addiction. And that's another one. Levels of addiction just skyrocketing all over the world, especially in the more advanced countries. So when there's nothing to fight, we would rather kind of pretend it doesn't exist and maintain the bubble. But when there's something to fight, ah, finally, we can use the technologies of control that we're so good at this is what we know how to do. We know how to kick some butt. We know how to, to, to defeat something.
1: And we can be the hero.
0: And we can be the hero. We can kill the dragon. Yeah. So even, so like you were saying, you know, in this case, it seems like there is a bad guy. But matters are not that simple. There's a whole theory of disease that I referenced in the article called uh, terrain theory summed up by your fish is sick germ theory isolate the fish terrain theory clean the tank the anthroposophical physician thomas cowan gave a really good uh, explanation of it he said if you if you're when he was a kid like they there were frogs all around their house they kept them awake at night there were so many frogs and then all of a sudden they were all gone Is that because some random disease spread like wildfire through the frog population and killed them? Or was it because they were spraying DDT everywhere? If the population of orcas is plummeting, is that because some new disease has raced through the orca population? Or is that because of the buildup of uh, uh, dioxin and PCBs in the food chain that's preventing them from reproducing and making them sick. Like we, we tend to ignore the systemic things, especially if they involve something that we ourselves are doing. It's not, not fun to look at if you're part of the problem. It's so much nicer to find an external thing to fight. So if we don't have an external thing to fight and life is getting worse and worse anyway, the response of somebody conditioned to the fight is to, manufacture an enemy and then go to war against the enemy vladimir putin covid 19 zika ebola like here's something that that everyone is just just poised just primed here it is here's the problem same kind of thinking enters into conspiracy theories Things are intolerable. I know it must be somebody doing it to me, doing it to us. Here's the pathogen. Here's the virus. It's these bad guys, the Illuminati, the Cabal. It's kind of comforting when you watch. I just watched a little bit of the uh, YouTube series, The Cabal. I was kind of underwhelmed by it, but, you know, I think David Ike does a better job of, of laying this out, but, but you know, there's a kind of a comfort in that. Ah, now I know what's happening, and theoretically, now I know what to do about it. Take those fuckers down. Problem solved. Kill Lex Luthor. Problem solved. Kill Thanos. Problem solved. Kill the Joker. Problem solved. Kill the virus. Problem solved. That is comforting. But is it true? What does it leave out? It leaves out the terrain. What are the conditions that allow Lex Luthor to operate? If there is an Illuminati, what are the psychic conditions that allow them to be so powerful? Because, see, it doesn't even matter if they exist or not. If they didn't exist, everything that we see today could still be happening. So I want to... That was one of the main purposes of, of, of the essays to invite us to look at the terrain, which includes the you know, medical terrain, like even excessive handwashing and hygiene weakens the immune system because you're not getting contact, you're not getting challenges, you're not getting an influx of new microbes and genetic information that interact with your immune system. So this is the irony. Even if you say, yes, I do hold survival to be the highest good, that actually brings the opposite, ultimately. And we're seeing this in our culture as life expectancy, which skyrocketed over the first part of the 20th century, increased by an enormous amount, slowed down in the second half of the 20th century and it wasn't because we stopped spending money on medical research. And now in the last few years is actually starting to decline. By almost any measure people are less healthy than they were. So yeah, I'll I'll stop there for now.
1: So far I imagine that the listener is just lockstep with us in this analysis. It it totally resonates with me. The people that I spend time with would listen to all of this and say, yeah, that feels right. And yet when we look at the terrain, there's a feeling of powerlessness that just pervades our responses to it. And I think part of what was so compelling about this essay is the idea that there's a coronation into sovereignty. And when people think that, mm, when I, let me speak to myself, when I look out at the world and I see the decisions that the Trump administration are making, I feel personally powerless in the face of it. And much like the children in the relationship to the earth, I both am not giving back to the earth, I'm taking from the earth, as we are as a species, but I also am not capable in defending the earth. I'm not in a relationship of sovereignty. So how do we actually clean the fish tank? And I know that the there's not a clean immediate answer to that. And this is going to be an ongoing experience of stepping into sovereignty and creating communities that are able to act. But I think one of the challenges of brilliant innovators within the festival community and beyond is a feeling of powerlessness against these incredible transnational structures that could very well use a crisis such as this to exert more control. For example, there are tons of independent event producers who've been creating these glorious gatherings where people are connecting in a heart-centered way, growing as, a, as as individuals and as communities. Many of these independent producers are going to be put out of business by this experience. Who's not going to get put out of business is Live Nation. Live Nation stock will go way, way down, but they'll be able, because they're large enough, to bounce back and to actually gobble up lots of independent producers. So here we are in our homes and your essay invites us to go deep and do the trauma work, which I believe is exactly what needs to happen right now. It's a yin moment, it's a time of going in. While we're in our homes, cultivating our inner flames, while we're doing the work on ourselves to make us more equipped and able to face the enormous challenges of the world, how do we emerge from this shelter in place moment? How do we respond to this COVID-19 crisis in a way that imbues us with the sovereignty and the power to actually take on these grand forces in the world and actually make change?
0: Well, I think you were basically starting to answer your own question when you mentioned that the work on the inner flame and the work of extending sovereignty into our personal realm is, I don't think you used the word preparation, but that's the word I would like to use. It's a preparation for doing that in other circumstances too. It's an establishment of an orientation toward life, which values something else besides personal survival. If you have a lot of people out there who value something else besides their personal survival or their security or their image, their status, et cetera, et cetera, then you're gonna have a lot of fearless people who are clear-eyed, not able to be manipulated, and who are willing to be creative and, and brave. Social change on a macro scale, it's not like one person can make that happen. Like this question, how do we change systems? It's offering us a power it's like a, it's, it's a trick almost. The question encodes an impossibility and in, it encodes a theory of change that's not actually how things work. What changes is, is when the, so when the terrain changes, when the ground from which our systems arise, the ground that undergirds our institutions, when that changes, then the institutions change too. It's not to say, you know, don't get involved in politics or something like that. But even if you are involved in politics, your involvement is always one person speaking to one other person or to some group of people. It all comes down to the personal. It all comes down to what we are speaking from. So the cleaning, the fish tank means in my mind, two things. One is the healing of trauma. That because it's the unhealed trauma that keeps us in conformity to the story of separation and the systems of separation and blinds us to our own power. And then secondly, it's to change the story and the story and the trauma and the healing. These are all, all related to each other. When someone experiences a healing, then their beliefs change very easily. And it can go the other way, too. If you are able to speak a dawning truth to somebody, that can set a process in motion that then leads to a desire to heal. You know, the despair, the, the, the burnout that you were talking about, I, I see a lot of people question, you know, what good does it do to, to run a festival or what good does it do to, to do some small thing in the world? when the problems are so huge. In the Newtonian view of the world, big change happens when you exert a big force on the world, when you do a big thing, when you have a big platform at least, or lots of money. And if you don't have a big platform, or a lot of force, or a lot of money, then you can't make a very big change. So the prescription then, if you want to be a change maker, you better accumulate a lot of power, which sets you into competition with everybody else who also wants to change the world. And you become a mirror of the mainstream.
1: And it reinforces the separateness. Yes, same thing.
0: And, and, but that behavior is inevitable when you accept the theory of change that the story of separation and Newtonian mechanics offers us. So part of the initiation is into a different understanding of how the world changes and what the world is and what's real, a different understanding of causality that embraces the knowledge that we have in those special moments where our choices feel especially significant, embraces that and says, that is what changes the world. It may or may not be politically cognizable that choice it could be the rational mind could say, "Well, how is that going to change the system? It was just a, a you know a little personal thing i was I was there for a homeless person, I was there for a friend. I was at the bedside of someone dying, like how is that going to change the world? Those are not a substitute for political engagement they are part of the same orientation if we orient toward service as guided by the heart in those circumstances then we're also opening to that guidance uh, in other circumstances
1: so i am of two minds on one hand i completely agree with you in the sense that it is about these small changes, it is about making the right choice, and it is about personal healing and cleaning our vessel so that we can be of service. And at the same time, I see in the Burning Man community, in the festival community, in myself, a hijacking of that into ego and magical thinking, where instead of actually healing the world, there's a certain self-aggrandizement of my own spiritual superiority. And I see it so much. And then I see it have such an adverse and harmful effect on people who are excluded from that community. In fact, I would say it is the most problematic, toxic element of what is otherwise spiritually rich and innovative group of people. There's this spiritual ego that hijacks, I think, really well-meaning desire to make incremental change from a heart-centered place. That gets hijacked into, like I said, magical thinking and then spiritual ego. And it, it, it seems like there's such a risk right now to say, well, I'm going to meditate all day. And that is going to turn this portal of uh, initiation into something that is generative to the world. And meanwhile, there are people of completely different communities and classes and experiences who are living a totally different life and completely divorced from that. So my concern here is how do we check ourselves ourselves and make sure that we're not caught up in our own egos in relation to this kind of personal growth, and we're not in a sort of, as Jamie Wheel said, a kind of spiritual cul-de-sac that often happens for the Burning Man community? Like, what do we do to combat that? Yeah, that's
0: a good question. The first thing I think that's useful is to understand that spiritual growth is not an accomplishment. And the reason to do it is not so that you get to count as a good person, an accomplished person, that you get to like yourself and respect yourself now because you've done the work, because you've done the meditation, you've meditated all day, you do an hour a day, you have a practice, you are conscious now. The meditation, as I said before, it's a way of preparing. Like, why do you want to have spiritual growth? You know, so what? Are you going to get a reward? My problem with the way that the hero's journey can be interpreted is that it feeds into the war against the self, where Hmm. improvement, improvement is a matter of overcoming something, of conquering something. It's the mirror of the war on the world, where improvement is a matter of defeating the virus
1: cure me of that, cure me of that, Charles, and I will forever be in your debt because no matter what I do, and I've done the Vipassana and the Aboga and all this kind of stuff, my orientation is is more service and I am growing. But what you've just described of that kind of, attempt to sort of it's not even self-transcendence, it's just this constant sort of attempt to overcome. I'm locked in that personally. And I am counting my wins in that sense. It's like, well, I meditated today and that means I'm a little closer to to having this, you know, cleaner vessel and that'll make me more worthy in my own eyes. And I myself am caught up in a sort of, you know, almost masturbatory masochism of self that, again, makes me less able to serve in the way that the world needs. So
0: the risk here is to do the same thing again in asking, how do I overcome
1: this? (laughs) Yeah, cure me of my illness with all of your control that you then can offer me. Yeah, that's basically what I'm asking you to do. I appreciate that you're not letting me do it.
0: So what what, what if what you're asking for is already happening and the fact that you are now aware of it simply marks a milestone in that happening. And that as this new information comes into you, you will notice choices that you hadn't noticed before. And that the readiness to make the choice will grow inside of you. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there's nothing for you to do until it's time to do it. And when it's time to do it, you'll know what to do. And it's just like the initiation for our culture. If we're not ready, when that moment comes, we get another chance and another chance and another chance, each chance coming from a more painful place. it, It recalls to me a conversation I had with a woman about a month ago and she had just had a uh, rather humiliating experience and was full of shame, you know, and then shame about her shame. I thought I was supposed to be practicing self-love. I'm a life coach. And I'm always telling people to love themselves and I can't even love myself. And I've been working on self-love for years now, Charles, what do I do about this? You know, how do I, how do I, what's my next step in learning self-love? And I was like, what if self-love is not something that you can do? Through your own efforts. What if the way that you learn self-love. Is to be loved by others. Who set the example. And you learn what it is through them. And she was like. It was like. Such a relief. She started weeping. You know. It was such a relief. For this not to be yet another thing. That you have to do. If you make spiritual progress into this thing that you have to do, then it is inevitable that you will end up with a spiritual ego because you've done it. You're doing it. And that guy over there isn't doing his work. What's wrong with him? He's not doing the work, but I am. So that's why I am so conscious and he isn't. If you were that guy, though, how do you know that you wouldn't be doing exactly what he's doing each one of us is on a path toward reunion from a very different starting place and it is an impossible path if it weren't for the help we get from the outside like the medicines and other people and the, and and just things that happen by grace and social movements that come at just the right moment and feed us new information. And the information that comes in places us at a different vantage point from which we can choose. So if you are noticing, you know, feelings of superiority, approval of yourself for having done whatever or disapproval for having not done it, then you can just take note of that as oh here's something that that is asking for healing the wound of self rejection that's what it is this is deep in our culture it's in religion it's in parenting school it's the result of punishment and praise as children, you're good if and only if you are like this. And what if you're not really like that? So there's like this deep suspicion that I'm bad. And we just take that for granted, that's the water in which we swim. And not to mention people who have actually suffered, you know, severe emotional, physical, sexual abuse, which is a lot. So there's so many ways that we carry this wound And once you've received that wound, of course, you're going to try to prove your lovability to yourself and others. So spiritual ego is a symptom of an illness, that's all. It's not the new enemy, but it can be a pointer to a condition. And then how do you change that? Again, not quite the right question.
1: There's the Buckminster Fuller moment, which is that the new paradigm makes the existing one obsolete. So you're not, you you don't force the change, but as you awaken to the new reality, then it falls away.
0: You'll have moments of being in the new reality. And in those moments, you'll be able to feed that information to other people. And then they'll feed it back to you when you're not in that reality, when you're back in the old story. And that's how we become enlightened together.
1: What I love in, in what you were just saying, what I was just thinking is the, um, the king does not place the crown on his own head. The queen does not place the crown on her own head. The coronation is not something that we forcibly do. And it's coming full circle to your quite worthy indictment of our instinct to control. So if we utilize a posture of control towards the world and to our, towards ourselves in this moment, we're only going to be returned by that same force. And that's what's been happening. And so the coronation, it's interesting because it seems to be, it's not a simple binary of, it's, it's totally passive or you're exerting control. There's, it's, it's like what we were talking about with the initiation space. You receive the medicine and then there's moments of choice. And it's like the meditation where there's a moment to like come back from your thoughts, a moment to awaken. So there's these moments of choice and release rather than the heroic conquering of ourselves, the heroic conquering against the virus, or even the heroic conquering against a system that is plundering the earth. And that actually much like an initiation, we enter a liminal space Time becomes unusual. We are visited by spirits in ways we don't understand. And the entire experience, as mine was with Iboga, is completely ineffable and unfathomable. And it occurs to you. And there are moments in which you have a choice to make. And that choice is coming back to this experience with coronavirus, the choice is I'm going to choose to stay inside even though it's hard. I'm going to choose to look out for my neighbor. I'm going to choose to share my resources. I'll make those choices. But on a grand scale, I cannot choose to be coronated by this experience. The coronation is occurring with me because I am not separate. I am part of this grander process.
0: Yeah. So if if you're carrying an accurate perception of your choices, to buy groceries for your neighbor, to give money to somebody who needs it to be in service, if you are an accurate perception of that, you will respond with gratitude. You will think, wow, thank you for all that has come to me that enables me to make these choices. It won't be a matter of self-congratulation for having grown to the point where you do this. Look what I've done. I'm so generous now. It is, look what I've done. I'm so loving now. How did you learn to be loving? How did you learn to be generous? Generosity comes from having received. Going all the way back to infancy, generosity comes from having been breastfed. Generosity comes from having been loved, from having been taken care of, from having received the gift of life itself. So if you are unaware of that and instead taking credit for your own generosity, you're actually just in a delusion. <laughs> it's, it's not that, you know, you're bad. It's just that you are <laughs> inaccurately perceiving the situation. So this attitude of conquest and control, it's not like control doesn't have a place. It's just gotten out of hand. And we, we're applying it to areas where it does not bring positive results. And when it doesn't work, we do even more of it. But this ambition to conquer evil, which is what it really comes down to, ends up only strengthening evil. Evil as we constitute it in this war is always stronger than we are. And it is like in mythology, the um, giant that Hercules Wrestles that get, I can't remember exactly, I'm probably mixing up different myths, but he only gets stronger and stronger the more you wrestle him until you lift him off the ground. Uh, deprive the so called evil of the ground from which it draws. And the ground conditions are, you know, what we were talking about about cleaning the tank. So This is a war that cannot be won with a fight. It only can be won and it's not, you know, I'm not even using the right words here, but it can only be won by stealing the ground from, from the enemy by speaking to the part of them, which is also a part of us that wants the same thing that we want. So it means to hold them in a story of we're all in this together you love the earth too. You love humanity too. You want to live a beautiful life too. You don't really want to maximize your financial self-interest. That's not who you really are. And I'm going to know that for you and hold open that invitation for you to step into that. And thank you to the world for giving me the resource that I need to hold that invitation when I can hold it. And thanks to all the others who hold that invitation for me when I cannot hold it. And we are therefore all together in this massive evolution, all-encompassing.
1: In the spirit of all of us being together, Charles, how are you spending your time right now? What's different for you now that we're entering this initiation space? Perhaps what lessons personally, not for the global, but for you and your own relationship to yourself, what's, what's going on for you? What's new for you? What? Where is your energy right now?
0: It's quite a crucible here with just uh, Stella and our son, Carrie. you know, in our little house here where things that may not have been apparent if we are having our usual routines and social interactions and Carrie's going to school, you know, and, and we have some time to ourselves every day and things that may, may not have been apparent are, are coming up for us. And it brings up choices like when this is all over, do we wanna just go back to normal? Who do we want to be? It's the same as the collective choice It that, that becomes more conscious. It's revealing things that in ourselves, like operating programs that were not otherwise visible.
1: Would you want be willing... Get- I was going to I was actually just going to ask you if you would be willing to give an example of that and you you totally don't have to it's your own privacy but I, I the reason I ask is because you're such a poignant thinker and to distill it down into your own personal challenge to me I think could be just enormously revealing and and actually quite tender for the person listening if you feel comfortable sharing. Um,
0: you know For me, it's just been so dominated by this essay, which I basically blew off everything in order to write, you know, and then the response to it. Like, I can't separate that out. It's really changed the way I see my role in the world, even. I don't think I want to speak for Stella. I mean, she's had some pretty big shifts as well. Hmm. What could I say though? I, you just have to give me a, a pause if that's all right. Maybe I'll just say that in the essay, all the different things I was writing about, all those different narratives, the conspiracy narratives, like the the I, I've personally gone through those all. Each one of those narratives corresponds to a state of being that I experience. I've had days of total despondency where my totalitarian nightmare is coming true. And it's not just an idea, it's a state of being. It's a feeling of total helplessness and victimization and helpless rage, helpless rage against the machine maybe even recalling, you know, being held down as an infant and, and circumcised without anesthesia, you know, which happened to pretty much everybody in my generation. This, this raging indignation and fury and, and the response to it to collapse The, the inner bleakness, and then from there, the question, like, why am I here? How do I know that what I'm doing is even useful? What if I'm wrong about everything? I've been a dissident my whole life, questioning many of our dominant narratives, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm like a just some gunk in the machine of civilization that's carrying humanity forward on this triumphal journey toward technological and social utopia? And I'm just like getting in the way. Like to seriously consider that. I've gone there in the last few weeks. Like fully gone there. Maybe the world is exactly as, as we've been told it is. By all the authorities. And I should have been listening to teacher. Maybe that's the lesson. I cannot intellectually distinguish. I cannot and say that that one's right and that other one's wrong based on any evidence. But I'm recognizing how each of these belief systems is lodged inside myself as a complex of experiences and wounds. And and positive experiences, too. And so, in that sense, the coronavirus crisis has been an initiation for me, too. Like, really putting me through through the works. So, I realize that isn't really personal. I did, really didn't want to get into uh, relationship stuff too much. Mm. No, no,
1: no. That was perfect. Yeah. That was exactly what I was asking for, actually. Um, okay. Because we've had this beautiful philosophical conversation. And to close, we're not going to tie this in a bow because this isn't the type of thing that is tied in a bow. That's the whole point. But to close, I wanted to bring it home to your heart. And I think you delivered the state of your heart in relation to this in a really eloquent way. So I'm, as, as a podcast host, very satisfied with what you've just offered in the context of what I wanted um, our listeners to feel. And I wanted mm-hmm. them to feel you in this moment. And I felt you in this moment. I really felt you in this moment. And I could resonate with my own doubts. You know, Am I trying to, uh, am I trying to be a leader in this time for self-aggrandizement? Or do I have a role to play? There's so many voices talking about coronavirus. Why am I even doing a podcast? Why am I, just, am I just more noise when Tim Ferriss is probably doing it better? You know, like all the same yeah. garbage thinking that exists prior just simply amplified.
0: You know, I think that this, maybe what I just said is why the essay has been influential, you
1: know, because people
0: read it and they're like, okay, this guy is not just saying this because he's ideologically wedded to a certain viewpoint the questioning, the unknowing that I went through comes out in the essay, I think. There's not like really a secret agenda that I want to persuade you of this viewpoint
1: or that viewpoint. You just want to stand at the crossroads with the reader. That's what you said. You just want to stand at that crossroads with the reader. And that I think is why the invitation is so exquisite because we're standing at a crossroads together. And if we can stand there together, then we have a much better shot at walking down a sunnier pasture than Mm -hmm. if we're all just discombobulated and looking at the world in these completely skewed ways in conflict with each other in our separate ways. We want to stand at the crossroads together and recognize that we've been together the whole time. And the only thing that's actually wrong is that we forgot that we're one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks. That's uh a, A good way of putting it. And this crossroads, to really appreciate that we're at the crossroads, it means that we have to accept that we don't really know what's happening. To be willing to at least question that maybe some of the things that I've held onto as truth are actually just beliefs that I maintain because they fit into everything else that I believe. And to let go of them would be scary. It would mean that I was wrong. It would mean that I don't understand the way the world works. It would mean that I don't know who I am even. But do we really want to hold on to something as true because of that? Even if it isn't really true? Especially when today it's a matter of life and death. So I guess if there is, yeah, maybe that is to answer the question at the very beginning. If I do have an agenda, it would be, to encourage people to step into the, I don't know. That's the, uh, the place where structures of belief dissolve, leaving an emptiness into which a new thing can come.
1: Charles, thank you so much for your time today and for being with me and sharing so openly and for your brilliant essay. It has touched me and so many people that I know and care about. And that's why I was so eager, as you know, very eager (laughs) because I asked like three people to connect me with you. So eager to talk to you. And frankly, I feel really open hearted in this moment. I feel really open hearted. And I don't know. I totally don't know, but I also feel ready too. I don't know. And I feel ready. And that's a blessing. And I hope that for those of you listening right now, I hope that you have some part of this feeling that that I'm feeling right now. Cause it it's comfort when there is no knowing to have your heart stay open.
0: Yeah, thank you, Eamon. I enjoyed our conversation as well. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you liked the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show, and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show, and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at Patreon lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor. I have one last question that happens at the end of the show, which is, Charles, how did the podcast go? Um,
0: There were some moments where I felt really, really plugged in, and there were a few moments where I was distracted as well and kind of fell back on thoughts I've already had. So, but overall, I, I, I believe that what was supposed to happen has happened. In our conversation.
1: I agree. I agree. And I think that you wrote the essay. The essay is there in the world. So this podcast didn't need to be the essay. You know, it didn't need to replicate the essay. The podcast just needed to be this shared moment between you and I with whatever moments of realness, vulnerability, and openness we were able to resonate with. And I feel very satisfied from that perspective. I'm Great. quite happy.
0: Yeah, so. <laughs> Awesome.
1: Well, thanks so much, Charles. I hope to speak yeah, with thanks, you Amy. again sometime soon. Thanks. Take care.